Welcome to Advent week three. I guess it's technically week four because we started the week late. We're going to be in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, which will be familiar to you because we just read it during our Advent liturgy. Grab your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll read these out loud together. Not that you haven't already read them out loud together. Reading scripture out loud together is, I think, is important. Uh, faith comes by hearing. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, there are some Bibles underneath the center column of seats. If you don't have one, you're welcome to grab that and work along with us as we read the scriptures today. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring the word to me, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced and exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own by their own way, whatever that says. Departed their <laughs> let's say it together. They departed to their own country by another way. You guys don't, just don't know how hard it is to read in front of you. You you add so much pressure to my life. Let's pray. Father, it's fun to have fun in church. I thank you for the joy that we feel here today as we get closer to Christmas. Christmas is a time of joy, and I pray that. Um, for everyone here, really for those in our community, our extended families, God, that, that, that for those of us who are distressed or troubled, for who are out of money and really want to do something nice for families and loved ones but can't, God, that you would give the gift that, I mean, that just covers at all. You give the gift of yourself. Lord, help us to be joyous uh, with the gift of Jesus during this holiday season. I pray for our time in the Word today. This is a familiar text, and Oftentimes with familiar texts, we, we just, uh, we, we stay in the familiarity of it. I pray that you would enlighten us and, uh, and really open our hearts to something uh, new, perhaps um, something more poignant that you would have us personally to, to see and to understand and to, and to know about you, but also about ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, so I don't know if it's going to hurt you or help you, but there's, there's like six days till Christmas. And so 
Uh, my son back there is like raising his hands, but what he doesn't know is like we're one of those families that there's not a, a single gift, like nothing. My grandma would say nary. That's like nary gift under our tree right now. And so either our kids are going to be disappointed six days from now or Santa Claus has a lot to do between now and next Saturday. Um, I don't know about you, but growing up, uh, Christmas, I mean, there's just a lot about the Christmas holiday that was fun for me. Uh, four things in particular just, just, that I just love about the Christmas holidays. The first uh, are the decorations. I'm just, I'm just like kind of crazy about Christmas decorations. Our house doesn't let me do as much as I want to do with decorations outside because there's no outlets on the outside of our house. So we got to like, what's up with these Virginia houses? Um, but I grew up, and my, my mom and my dad, I mean, we, I mean, they just, we did everything. There was, there were these big two-inch, you know, with those fat, red, green, yellow, orange lights, and we nailed them up on, out the side of the house, and it was the exact contour of our house, and um, my dad would put up, like, Santa, Santa Claus with the eight reindeer, and they were lit up in front of our house, and then we, my mom would put these, like, fake boxes all lit up in the front yard, and, um, uh, along with that, uh, in the East, of course, I'm a child of the six, late 60s and 70s, and so we had a tinsel tree. I mean, it, I mean, it was the original aluminum tree. And so there were no lights on it. You had this light that you, you put on the ground about 10 feet away from the tree, and it had a, this circular thing on the front of it, red, green, orange, I think, um, and blue, and it turned, and it made colors on the wall and on your, that's just how we did it back then, for those of y'all that are only like two or three years old. I love, I love lights then, I love lights now. Probably the second thing that I love are just the family get-togethers. My father is the oldest of ten kids, my mom is the oldest of seven, and I mean, just, can you imagine, just like, three or four generations of people coming to a location, just cramming ourselves in my grandma's little house and of course the, the the third thing would be the food that we had and christmas for us was i mean it was just it was like a thanksgiving do-over except you had other stuff as well and you got to interact with uh, with aunts and uncles and you know multiple generations of people and cousins and cousins and cousins and cousins and just getting reacquainted and having fun and that was that's our family tradition and i loved it and it's formed who you know sort of who i am around the christmas time and, and lastly, but obviously not least, are the presents. I and mean, that's what Christmas is all about, right? The, uh, the joy and the anticipation of, of both giving and receiving a gift. That was Christmas as I know it, and it really forms what Larissa and I do for our kids even now in regards to Christmas. Um, our text today is a familiar text because you know the Christmas story, but it's it's really familiar because we just looked at this text last week. You're just like, Jeff, what are you doing? You're reading the same thing we read last week. Um, we are, and I take a risk in doing that, but we're going to look at uh, this story in Matthew chapter 2 from a different angle. And so last week we looked at it from the, the perspective of, of Herod. Today we're going to look particularly at the Magi. And Matthew's gospel is unique in that, in that Matthew... I mean, he doesn't waste any time talking about Jesus in the manger, the shepherds, you know, watching the flocks by night, the angels coming and singing the glory, hallelujah. He doesn't give us any of that detail. Matthew tells us, he gives us a snapshot of the plight of Mary and Joseph um, before they give birth. He skips the actual manger scene. And then he tells us a little bit of detail about Jesus post-manger birth and these magi, these wise men coming to visit him in Bethlehem. And uh, 
So our Advent theme today is, is hope for seekers. And here's the, the question that I want you to deal with, wrestle with, perhaps even meditate on beyond our service today um, from, uh, from this chapter of, of text today. And it's what are, you, what are you seeking? And, you know, first the immediate question for us, because it's Christmas time, is you know, definitely if you're a young person here, you, I mean, you just... You got your mind, you got your Christmas list, there's things that you want, and you're hoping, you're seeking that you're going to wake up, you know, Christmas Day, and the things that you want are going to be under the tree, and it's going to be joy for you. But I would uh, care to say, I know this is true of my own life, and probably for you too, that whether you admit it or not, there are things in your life, in your heart, just both physical and unconscious things about yourself that you're seeking, that you're longing for, and you don't know how you're going to make them come about. What are you seeking? And so during our time today, um, this is what I want to do. I want to draw out four truths in regards to the Magi, in regards to our hope as seekers. The first being that God seeks sinners. God seeks Sinners. When I was growing up, one of the favorite games that we played in my neighborhood was hide and seek. I mean, y'all, do I have to explain hide and seek? Y'all know hide and seek. You got some secret. You got a, some people that hide. You got a person designated as a seeker. You 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 uh, designate a safe place, and the the goal is uh, all the hiders are gonna try to get to the safe place without be you know without being caught or tagged because you'll be it the it person after that. So here's the thing. I was a good hider. And, and my neighborhood was the perfect place to hide. We, we played in hide-and-seek mostly at my neighbor's house, the, the, the house right next to mine. It was the perfect house for hide-and-seek because it, was, it, was, it backed up against some woods. They had all kinds of stuff, junk, in their, <laughs> in their yard, like sheds and stuff that shouldn't have been there. And they had hedges around the house. And so I was kind of little back then. And so, I, I mean... This one time we played, and I just like jammed myself in the middle of this hedge, and I just I just hung out there, and uh, and so the the, the seeker person he was counting down, ready or not, here I come, all right, and I'm I'm in my perfect hiding spot. Five minutes goes by, I'm like yes, he's not gonna catch me. Ten minutes goes by, and I get worried because like I haven't even heard footprints go by me yet. And it feels like like an hour goes by, and all of a sudden I just like let me come out and find out what's going on. So I come out, I you know I run to the safe spot, put my hand on it, and I'm looking looking for all my buddies, where where everybody is, and no one is there. And so I go to the the neighbor's house, I knock on the door, come inside. Guess what? Them jokers were all, I mean they were all all my friends were in the house hanging out, chowing down on snacks that his mom has put out and watching TV. Um, so much for playing hide and seek. I mean, honestly, they weren't seeking. They, uh, they didn't want to play with me anyway, but they weren't seeking at all. That's not, the, that's not what we would say about the wise men in the narrative uh, of, of Matthew 2. The, the, the wise men in this narrative were seekers, and, and for the most part, they were on a mission from God himself, even if they did not know it. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Um, many of you are familiar with the Christmas carol, uh, We three kings of Orient are. You can probably sing the rest of it. All right, I can't say that's heretical, 
but it's definitely not biblical. You want to know why we didn't sing that verse, that, that song this morning? Because it's just, it's not, the way the song is sung, it's not the way the Bible writes the account of the, the wise, the magi coming in and worshiping Jesus. Um, here's what's wrong with the song. The magi weren't kings. There, we don't know how many of them there were. And so when it says we three kings, I mean, we don't know how many there were. Sometimes we assume there were three because the, the, the wise men bring three gifts to Jesus, but that's not the actual uh, biblical record. But very likely, they traveled such a long journey. In fact, the text says they were from the east, meaning the east of Jerusalem. Uh, history records the Magi were a tribal priesthood originating from Mesopotamia. So that would have been thousands of miles um, way east of Jerusalem. And if you consider uh, the distance that they had to go and the thing that they were coming to do, uh, they would have had they would have had guardsmen or soldiers. They would have had uh, a logistics chain. I mean, it's a caravan, a convoy of stuff. Um, and they would have had provisions for that long trip. And so very likely they would have come not just three, but some commentators say 12 or up to 17 wise men with the stuff that would have gotten them those thousands of miles from where they were to Jerusalem. And if, if they were traveling in a mobile perspective, like on a camel, going perhaps 12 or 17 miles a day, think about that. They would have taken them weeks, if not months, to get to Jerusalem from Mesopotamia. And so they were wise men, not kings. And when, when I say wise men, you should think that there's precedence in the Bible for wise men. In the Old Testament, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was called a wise man. He was the, the word the Old Testament would use is he was a magi, him and his cohorts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the same thing that we could say about Daniel are the things that we should believe about these wise men. They were learned, they were noble, and they would have been wealthy because they served as counselors to kings, and they would have been rewarded for the, the work that they had done. And so these particular wise men were, were stargazers. They had interest in the things that were going on in the heavens. They were students of the heavens, in fact. Um, they would have been a cross between a, an astrologer, uh, think fortune teller, people that predict things and just sort of try to guess what's going on, and an astronomer, think our astronauts, those that are interested in the cosmos and how the planets and all that stuff works. But, but most importantly, and this is the interesting part of this story. They were, they were pagan. I mean, they weren't God worshipers, definitely not the God of the Jews. They, wouldn't, they, they would have come nowhere close to believing in and worshiping the God that we know is the God of the, the heavens and the earth. Um, another fact that's, that's pertinent in the story, the Bible forbids astrology. You can't be a fortune teller and, and not get mocked or even get stoned to death if you're an Israelite subjecting yourself to astrology. They were monotheistic. They would have believed in the God that created the, the thing that they called the world, but they were definitely not God worshipers, uh, the God of Israel at all. What makes this definitely more interesting is that God would use people like the Magi in the birth narrative of Jesus. Think about that thousands of miles away, doing their own thing, fortune-telling and believing in the stars. One of they believe in, a, in a, you know, a God that created it all. And God uses them to serve as witnesses to the birth of God himself. 
And as interesting as that is, that's the very thing that God does. God chooses to speak to stargazers through a star. And so to get their attention, he uses the very thing that would get their attention. He uses something that means something to them. He condescends, he lowers himself to their level of understanding so that, that he could communicate to them, pointing out to them who the eternal God was in the form of this baby who would be birthed through a womb of a virgin, Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, I should add that they were learned men. They were wise men. They would have been privy to the, the prophecies. They would have called it the predictions or the fortune telling of, the, of, of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. They would have probably read those. They would have known that, that Daniel said there was, a, uh, there was to, uh, to be born a royal deliverer somewhere in Israel at about this time and that you should be looking up in the sky for the sign. And so it just made sense. They see this strange sight in the heavens and it beckons them to, to go and follow it because that's what they do. They're stargazers. And so the star points to Jerusalem and they follow it. Here's what I think is, is pertinent for us in, in this story. God does the same thing with people like us. God speaks to us in ways that get our attention. To a musician, he uses music. To an artist, he might use art to help them see something about God and his create, uh, creativeness um, that will draw them to himself. God invades our circumstances such that we come to know that he's God and he's calling us to himself. It just, it just, fathom, it just it's unfathomable. God sought out pagan wise men and he miraculously leads them to a place where they would serve as the Gentile witnesses to the birth of the Christ. God seeks sinners. And the good news in that, here's the, here's the hope for those of you who seek, is that God is seeking you. That's what this is saying to us. God is seeking you. He's seeking those of you, firstly, who are, who are skeptics. Those of you that haven't even decided that there's a God that exists. You might see signs of it in the earth. You might hear people talking about it. You might even want to believe it, but there's something in you that just hadn't let yourself you know, submit to the myth that there's really a God that exists. And the only other side of that, he's seeking those of us who are prone to blind faith, as if we can just turn our minds off and take blind leaps of faith. And that's like those of us who have been born into Christianity, your, your parents and your grandparents, and you just have a lineage of faith. And there's never been a point where you have not believed. And God would say even here that he's not afraid for you to have doubts. The Bible invites you to investigate it in its history and in what it portrays about who God is and what he's come to do. It beckons you to come with your doubts because the Bible gives, I mean, it's a book of history as well as a book of redemption. It gives names and places and dates in it as it tells the story of redemption. And here's what I would say. The hope for all of us is not that you're seeking God, but that God is seeking you. And here's the second truth that we can extract from this story about the Magi. God responds to those who respond to him. God will respond to those that respond to him. I wanted to call this God responds to those who seek him, but the text wouldn't support that because everybody in this text isn't necessarily seeking God and they don't respond to God rightly. But here's what we find. 
Um, one, of the, one of the things that stands out in Matthew chapter 2 is that it's the very response uh, to the announcement that the king of the Jews has been born. John Scott preached about this last week as he talked about Herod, particularly in verse 3. We learned that Herod was disturbed. The ESV uses the word troubled. He was troubled at the potential threat to his throne of power. Uh, uh, the, the Magi came and said, hey, where is he that's been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And Herod took that as a sign that there was someone that was a little boy that was going to grow up and dethrone him. And of course, John tracked the whole history of, of Herod. And it's fair to say that Herod was wicked. He was paranoid. I mean, Herod was cray-cray, right? I mean, he was capital C crazy. And that, I mean, his response to the birth of Jesus just reflected his character. And firstly, he tries to deceive the wise men themselves. And, and he says to them, go find the child and I'll come and I'll worship him with you. And after that, verse 16, he establishes an order of all things to kill all the young male children, boys, who are toddlers, two years and below, born in Bethlehem in hopes of killing Jesus. That's the response of Herod. And then you have the anxious response of the people in Jerusalem. Verse 3 says that Herod was troubled, but so was all of Jerusalem. And what this is uh, suggesting to us is that the, I mean, I mean, who was in Jerusalem? Nothing but Jews. Jews who would have known the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they would have been hoping and waiting and longing for the announcement that their Messiah was on the scene because they believed that this Messiah was going to come and set them free from people like Herod. Yet the text tells us that their response was one of anxiety and also of trouble. And, and that should confuse us a little bit. Why would they be troubled when, I mean, their deliverer was somewhere on the earth, but they were troubled because, as John said last week, if the king is troubled, everybody that's under the king is going to be troubled as well. These Jews, um, they were anxious and troubled for fear that this baby's birth was going to somehow lead to their own harm. Herod would, I mean, if they would come, would come out in public and be jubilant about the birth of the Christ, announcing, hey, our Messiah is here. Oh, by the way, he's going to overthrow this wicked man, Herod. Very likely their jubilance and their connection to Herod would cause Herod to do those random things that he often did, kill people that threatened his power and his throne. Thirdly, we see that Matthew highlights the response of the religious leaders, verse 2 through 4. And what Herod does is he, he calls in the the, the scribes and the chief priests. And this is interesting that he calls in these two groups of people, religious leaders, Jewish, but they are the opposite extremes. Um, they're, they're the most opposite um, groups of people that you could bring together and ask a question. Um, it's like the, the, the far right conservative wing of the Republicans and the far left um, most liberal uh, wing of the Democrats, and you have the Tea Party and the Green Party adjudicating. And so he calls in uh, these two different groups, and he asks them the question, so where is the Christ child to be born? And um, they actually come together, and they give him a singular answer. And they say, it's, it's Bethlehem of Judea. The strange thing about the these two religious groups is they don't say anything else. In fact, they disappear from the story. That There's nothing else that we learn about them that they do in the story of the birth 
of Jesus. We would expect that they would rejoice. We would expect that they would inquire where the Magi are going and how they're actually going to come about in Jesus, but they don't do any of that. They don't even gesture towards going with the Magi to worship Jesus along, uh, go to Bethlehem to worship Jesus with the Magi. Like good religious people, they compl- they, I mean, they're completely apathetic. They, they ask for the king and they go home having done their duty. But then we get to the response of the wise men. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the child, to the, king, to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it went, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse ten. When he saw the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Um, there's no indication in the text or from what we know about the Old Testament that the that these wise men knew anything about the identity. Of, of Jesus, uh, that the, the very little boy they were going to crown as a king and, and worship was the eternal son of God made, made flesh. But they, they're moved to honor him. And it's interesting what they do. I mean, they, they bow in worship to the son of God. They bow in reverence. And after they bow, they open a treasure box full of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've sung songs about these gifts, but I mean, have you heard about what they actually really mean? There's a lot of speculation over these gifts. Uh, some scholars link them symbolically to some, you know, somewhat obscure texts in the, in the Old Testament that they're trying to connect the prophecies of, of Jesus coming to his passion, saying these gifts are symbolic of that. And Honestly, I don't dismiss that. I think the, I think the Bible is connected enough, um, miraculously. God put it together that we can make some connections like that. But based upon the, just the context, I think, um, I, I mean, we're just assuming that these were truly pagan men from the East. The truth is they didn't choose these gifts with Jewish prophecies in mind. I mean, they weren't trying to come and worship a Jewish king. I think they brought these great gifts, understanding they were going to meet a king. And here's the custom of their day. When you go to meet a king, you bring a gift. And, and here's what the, the, the Magi do. They brought the best gifts they could bring. So the first thing they, 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 they bring were, were the uh, costly and grand gift of, of gold. Gold was considered the metal of kings. It was, it was not just costly, it was beautiful, it was rare. It was expensive. And so I don't know if they meant to do this. They were just coming to worship uh, whoever the king was. But what they did in that moment by bringing him gold was to recognize that Jesus was a king. The second gift was frankincense. And, and frankincense is, is, is expensive, expensive, first of all. It's glittering, fragrant gum that takes a lot of effort to extract it from the bark of a tree. But it was, it, it was the exclusive incense that they used in the, the most holy place of the temple. It was exclusive in that the people couldn't get that in any way, at least the Israelites couldn't get it in any way and use it for themselves. It was supposed to be used for the priest in the most holy place as they worshiped the Lord. 
And so I don't know what moved the wise men to, to get and then offer this child frankincense. But in offering him frankincense, what they were doing was anointing him or, or basically saying they were worshiping him in a divine way as a divine person. And the third gift was myrrh. Myrrh was, I mean, it was just valuable. It was firstly a valuable gum resin. It was valuable because it could be used for multiple purposes. It could be used as a spice. It could be used as a perfume or in medicine. If you had a bottle of myrrh, it would cost us about $10,000 in today's dollar. So imagine um, the, the, the price of the gift that they were giving Jesus 2,000 years ago. Here's what's very significant about myrrh. It was used to embalm corpses. We're told in John 19 that Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus had died on the cross, he took him down, put him in that unused cave, and they anointed his body with spices. And one of those spices, the primary spice they used, was myrrh. I don't know what these magi knew. I don't know what they had, in, had intended for Jesus. But when they bring him myrrh, what they're doing is prophetically announcing the significance of his future death. And so these magi brought the best gifts to Jesus that they could find. But more than just the gifts, here's what they bring him. They bring him their response. They bring a response of, of reverence. They bring a response of, of worship. Somehow God put it in them, both in their person, but more so in the gifts that they brought, to worship this young child who lay before them. Now, here's the, here's the thing. God responds to those that respond to him. Typically, when you brought a king a gift, the king would return in kind some kind of gift to the subjects that, uh, that, that blessed him. Think about some, some royal dignitary coming to see our president. Um, I mean, you can imagine the White House is filled with all kinds of gifts that foreign dignitaries come and bring our, our president uh, when they're in office. And so Mary and Joseph were like dirt poor. How do we know that? Well, because when they took Jesus to the temple to offer the sacrifice when a child is born, they couldn't even provide what the, the Old Testament requirement was. They bring a, a, a dove, which is the cheapest thing that you can bring to the priest. And so they're dirt poor. And so they have nothing to give in kind to these these wise men um, as the custom would, would give it. But God does respond to those who respond to him. In this case, Jesus doesn't give them anything in his person at that, at that point, but, but he does at some point, perhaps a later time, at least 28, 30 years later, give them what they can't buy anywhere. He gives them himself. He he. He submits to the plan of God for him in this life and lives it perfectly. He goes to the cross, receiving in himself the penalty for the sins of the world, and he dies on that cross in our place for our sin. And he gives us all forgiveness of sin and eternal life, at least for those of us who confess him as our Lord and put our faith in him. It's a response that comes much later, but... I think that response comes to these wise men at all, that he would offer salvation to all of us who truly worship him. God seeks sinners. God responds to those who respond to him. 
Here's a third truth. God seeks you so that you can find him. God doesn't play hide and seek with you, but he seeks you so that you can find him. I think we could extract that as one of the truths from this text, but this is not just a a truth that comes from the story of the Magi or the story of Christmas. This is the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. This is the theology of the Bible. God seeks you and makes provisions for you to find him on the journey of your life. Look at the witness of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah the prophet says, you'll seek me and find me when you find me. You'll seek me and find me when you, uh, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. For those of you who know the Old Testament, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet trying to turn wayward Israel away from their sin and, and back to God. And Jeremiah is speaking these words as a prophet to Israel as they are in exile. So God has already like dismissed them from their own land and subjected them to, uh, to rules they don't want to be under. And then he gives them this promise that, hey, I haven't left you. There is a remnant. I I love you in the beloved, and as you seek me, you will find me. It's this reciprocal thing that God says, seek me, and I'll I'll return that. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 7, verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. And so God, you know, Israel comes out of exile, but they don't necessarily ever turn from their sin. And so to save humanity, to serve creation, save creation, God has to send Jesus, incarnated as a man, incarnated as a baby in this story. He grows up, lives a, perfect, lives a perfect life, goes to the cross, dies in our place for our sin. And Jesus, as he walked the earth, preparing those that God is calling to himself, he says these words. He says, I'm initiating, but in my initiation, showing you the love that God has for you. All I'm telling you you have to do is ask, seek, and knock. And God will respond to those who respond to him. But what the Bible also conveys is that, is that in all of our asking, in all of our seeking, and, and definitely in all of our searching and knocking for God, God seeks you first. This is the theology of the Bible. God actually seeks you first. None of us is walking down a street, doing a pink, doing our own business, and then the thought comes into our mind, you know what, I'm going to seek God today. That doesn't happen. No, God has put, he's orchestrated things in your life along the way. A word here, going to church there, someone giving you a track, hearing a song on the radio, opening your Bible and reading it, perhaps not even understanding that God is in overt and very covert ways wooing you as the people that he's calling to himself so that he could offer you the gift of salvation to you. I think that's what's going on way back in chapter, in Matthew uh, verse 2, 2 verse 2. We have no idea of the, the exact details of that were set in order that got these stargazer, uh, wise men, magi, thousands of miles away to pay attention to um, Jewish prophecy of the the birth of a deliverer, and then see a sign in the the sky, and then have the wherewithal to actually follow that star and end up bringing the right gifts to worship worship this child. We don't know the the details behind all of that, but this is what we do know. We know that it, it wouldn't have happened if God didn't set it in motion. 
God set all that in motion and it, it uniquely, intricately fit together to bring about the plan that God has for, for you and I through the story of Jesus. God attracted wise men to biblical prophecy of a people that were totally disconnected from them and then placed a star in the sky so that scar, stargazers would wonder about it and follow it. Before the Magi ever began looking for Jesus, God has already sought them first. Jesus tells uh, three great parables back to back in Luke 15, um, and they all uh, along the same line. They're suggesting to us the links that God will go to seek you first. Luke 15, we aren't going to read these. They'll be on the screen here for you. Luke 15, uh, 3 through 7 is the parable of the lost sheep, and Jesus, he's speaking to religious uh, leaders here, and, uh, and he's basically telling them just God's passion for the lost. And so he conveys his story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And he says this shepherd, intending these a hundred sheep, somehow one little sheep just goes astray and goes far enough that the shepherd has to leave the 99 and then he goes and you know, searches for and then eventually secures the one all to himself. Catches him, brings him back home, probably like holding up in his arms and, you know, don't do that ever again, you know, but loving on him, puts him back. And then when he gets home, guess what he does? He goes to all of his neighbors, all of his friends, all his family members, and he says, hey, rejoice with me. I've, I've, I had a sheep that got lost. He went way out of, of the pack. I, came, I went in search for him, found him unscathed, and now he's back. Come to my house, man, through a party. Here's the deal. If you're a shepherd, like in those days, living in the land, I mean, you don't just like pull out your cell phone. You don't, you don't, you don't dial anybody up on your phone. You got to actually like, you know, put your running shoes on, get your Fitbit on, and like go to each one of these houses and find these people to invite them to anything that you're going to put on. Um, I lose stuff all the time. I don't like that minute, but I do. Like, especially my keys or my wallet. And so this, would, this is how stupid this is. This would be like me losing my keys, asking my wife to help me find them. She helps me find them. And then as overjoyed as I am every time that happens, I, I text all my closest friends. So it'd be all of you. All right, come over to my house. I'm going to throw a block party. All right, and so we all come over, to, you know, across the street, having fun. It's like the, a slamming party. It's like fun, fun. Christmas lights and everything. And, uh, and then somebody that just is passing by, they, uh, they, they look it's like, what is going on? It's like, did, um, did Jeff graduate from seminary? Did, uh, did, like, he won a million dollars in the lottery? Uh, did one of his kids graduate from, from college without having any debt? I was like, no, he just found his keys, dude. <laughs> Let's rejoice. I mean, that's, that's what's going on here. And then after that, verse 10 through 8 through 10, he tells the story of a woman who's lost a silver coin. She has 10 of them. She loses one. And, I mean, she's, like, moving stuff out of the house. She's sweeping like areas of the house she hadn't swept in a long time. And she does everything that she can just to find this one coin. And we don't, it's a silver coin, but perhaps it doesn't even cost a lot. But she finds it, she rejoices, and she calls everyone that she knows and says, hey, I had a coin that was lost, but I found it. And I'm overjoyed. And won't you come and share in my joy? So here's the, I mean, what's the point of these two parables? Jesus is telling this to religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes who were complaining that Jesus was hanging out too much with 
with, uh, with, with sinners. But Jesus uses this occasion to convey the extreme passion that he has for those who are lost. I mean, that's what we should see in these two parables. But here's, here's the other thing that we should see in these parables. We should see that the extent that God will go to continue pursuing his elect. God doesn't just care about bringing people to faith. He cares about you continuing in the faith connected to him. God is pursuing us. He's actively, patiently, passionately wooing your heart. It's crazy. He's driven by this one desire to find people who will respond to his pursuit and do this one thing. Seek him back. And and the scriptures are replete with evidence that God seeks us, that God reveals himself as a seeker. God is on this continual pursuit of us. Look Look at what the scripture says. We find the Father seeking true worshipers, John 4. He says, those who would worship me must come in spirit and in truth. The psalmist says, Psalm 14, 2, he said, God writes that God scans the earth from heaven looking for those who seek after him. The writer of Chronicles tells us God's eyes run to and fro throughout the planet, seeking blameless hearts. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. We find Jesus telling us that he's come to seek and save the lost in multiple places, particularly in Luke 19, 10. And then in the parables we just looked at, what does Jesus do? He gives us a glimpse of like his own compassionate heart towards the lost. He'll leave the 99 just to find the one. He's like a woman who will take everything out of her house painstakingly to find that lost coin. I love two other parables in this, in this regard. I mean, Jesus uses, I mean, he just very succinctly tells the story of this same thing. He says, there's a merchant who was out shopping and he found, I mean, just the most perfect set of fine pearls. And guess what he did? He went back to his house, sold everything that he had. He came back and bought it because it was that costly. It was that costly. That it was worth it to him. And the moral of that parable is that you are that pearl of great cost. God seeks you so that you can find him. God seeks you first. Here's my my last point. And this is not a truth from the text, but I think it's an implication. And this is where I started. And it's this. We're all seeking something. We're all seeking something. What are you seeking? You know, it's Christmas and Some of us actually do want a gift. There's a particular gift that you want, like my kids. My kids, because there's no no gifts under the tree yet, they keep sending us their gifts as if, like, the resending of their gift, actually refining of their their list, is going to make the gift appear. Like, poof, there it is. No, Santa Claus has to actually go out and get that thing. And I think he's going to get to work maybe starting tomorrow. (laughs) So maybe you, I mean, maybe that's what you're seeking, just a gift. You just, I mean, you just want to be blessed by a gift. But perhaps there are some deeper things going on in your heart. Most of us are sinking, thinking and seeking something more. Some of us seek acceptance. You know, acceptance is one of our greatest needs, to know that you're welcome and that you won't be rejected. I think deep inside of us, there's this thing that, um, I mean, we all have things we don't like about ourselves, and sometimes... We don't want people to know those things. We want to present our best self, and we think that if, if you really know the real me, you reject me, you wouldn't like me. And so sometimes we'll do just everything that we can to be accepted. 
perhaps you're seeking that. Some people seek intimacy. And by this, I simply mean we just want a real, actual relationship with other people. One that's deeply fulfilling, where there's connectedness, where people just won't dismiss you when you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But the, the, the tendency for all of us is that we have a friend, it, the relationship grows, and then we get disappointed, and we, we just feel like they need to cut it off. And sometimes we'll do that to parents and siblings and significant others and even spouses. And so we still seek that intimacy. Some of us seek approval. In fact, there's no one alive that doesn't seek approval. We want our moms and our dads and our peers and the heroes of our life to think well of us. Sometimes more than we're willing to admit it, what people think of us matters more than anything. And it, it really organizes our day that we try to get people to like us and approve of us. And this is not last, but it's the last one on my list. Some people just seek hope. I mean, you just want hope. Your life has perhaps been this, um, you know, one long litter of failure. You're scarred by abuse. You're scarred by your own humble through, uh, humble through suffering or ruined by addiction. Sometimes we're seeking hope for things we can't explain. Sometimes we just hope for a better life, hope for a better season. We want things to be better than they currently are. We're seeking to get out of the mess that we're in. We're seeking that for something or someone to give us hope, hope that we don't have but we're supposed to, or at least so we think. So let me ask you, what are you seeking? But more than that, I mean, what, when and if you get what you're seeking, I mean, would it really even matter? Would it, re- will it really matter if you got all those things that you're seeking? I think what Christmas reminds us each year is that all that we seek is found in Jesus. Just think about it. For all those things that you're seeking, God says your union with Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, gives you all that you need. If you're one that seeks approval and that seeks acceptance, then the Bible says that you, everything that Christ is, you are, that he loves you in the beloved, that there's nothing that you could do that's good that would make him love you more, that there's nothing that you can do that's bad that would make him love you less. If you're seeking intimacy that says that Christ himself has come in the person of the Holy Spirit and he dwells with you and he'll be with you forever, and you can't get more intimate than that. And if you're seeking hope, then the Bible says, it says very simply in numerous places, Christ is our hope. We learn through this story of the Magi that God himself is the real seeker. Though we seek, God seeks us more. And so this is not just a story of, of Christmas. It's really the story of our lives. God seeks you. He wants to commune with you. God seeks you in the promise of Jesus coming. He seeks us individually, as we said during our Advent liturgy, in an irrepressible calling. God calls you to himself, and he's not going to turn that off ever. He's ever calling you to himself. Like the Magi following a star, God guides us in uncanny ways to himself. He gives us with the spirit-generated joy by which he gives us the impetus to worship him. And lastly, as we draw near to God today and, and always, he says, 
you can only do that because I, I drew near to you first. So God welcomes you to seek him. But firstly, he wants you to know you seek him because he wants to be sought. Can you believe that? God, the God of the universe, wants to be sought. He needs nothing from you, but he wants you to seek him. Secondly, we should rest in the assurance that God seeks you because you desperately need his love. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are seekers, and sometimes in our seeking, we seek things that we want, that we think we need, but they're not really what our hearts need. Our hearts need you. So thank you that you are firstly the seeker of our souls. Thank you, Lord, that you initiate, that while you call us into reciprocal seeking, Lord, ultimately, you seek us first. God, would you give us the wherewithal to praise you for how you seek and draw us to yourself? God, I pray that I pray that we would respond correctly, that our response would be like that of the Magi, that though we don't quite understand you or your ways all the time, we want to know the intimate details of everything. God, you just woo us to yourself, and as we come, you give us the desire to worship you. Make us like that. Make the thing that we seek, particularly this Christmas, would not just be the gift, although gifts are fun. Make this Christmas the thing that we seek would be more intimacy with you more expressed love for you. Draw that out of us, Jesus. Put it in us. We thank you that you seek us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.